1 Samuel chapter 11. And I just, I'm, this is my Mother's Day message. You're going to see it's going to take a long time to get there, but it will be in there. We've been following through, our theme is glory days, and we're talking about God and his kings. And sometimes you're going to see it gets kind of dark. But this is a Mother's Day message, believe it or not. We will get there. Just trust me. Trust me. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Before we get there, I just want to tell you a little story. When I was uh, growing up, I went to a private school. And in the sixth grade in my private school, there were these two boys named Don and Dave. And Don and Dave, at sixth grade, could already shave. They were a foot taller than everybody else. And they were monsters. I mean, they were monsters. This Dave especially, he, uh, when he played football, he could tackle the whole offensive line just by himself. He was giant. But they were bad guys, you know, and the in the playground, they were bullies. They would take everybody's, they would take everybody's like uh, basketballs and kick them over the garages, and they were just bad kids. And I remember telling my dad about Dave and Don, and he said, "Chris, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. By the time they are in high school, they will be a foot shorter than everybody else." I said, "That's not true, Dad. They're, they got full-grown beards in the sixth grade. This is crazy." I said, "Don't worry about it." I said, "Just don't worry about it." And you know what, believe it or not, about 7th grade, people started catching up to them. 8th grade, they were equal with them. Ninth grade, Dave and Don didn't grow anymore. By the time Dave was in senior high as a senior, he never played sports anymore. He grew wide instead of tall, and he was not an athlete anymore. He thought he could take that ability he had in 6th grade, and it just would come naturally. While these younger, shorter kids would work hard and, Develop skills, and by the time they were in high school, they started physically catching up, but their skills were, they were just as, they were learned. But Dave was kind of left, left in the dust, and Don never bothered another person again. And that's sort of what this story is about. Starting well is okay. Starting well, having a great beginning, that's all right, but if you don't finish well, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. And I have to say, we have to be very careful that we don't start well with our walk with God where we make all of these grand pronouncements. We get, we get fired up at some kind of conference. We hear a song that makes us cry, and I'm going to give my life to God, but if we don't carry it out, it really doesn't mean anything. And today the example of this starting well but not ending well is King Saul, the first king in our story on glory days like a good race he had a great start but he didn't finish let's begin in first samuel chapter 11 i'm going to read this whole chapter and don't worry we will get to a mother's day theme but you this doesn't start out too motherly verse 1 first samuel 11 then nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. This is a great Mother's Day message. Wow. <laughs> this would be a rated R movie, by the way that I would gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Then the elders at Jabesh said, 
Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. So he's out plowing behind his oxen. And Saul said, what's wrong with this people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them all in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Great Mother's Day message, huh? Packs up a whole cow and sends it all out. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. And there he knew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is a great start for Saul. Major victory against some pretty wicked dudes. And I'll tell you, there is nothing. There's really nothing like the thrill of victory. Nothing like it. I'll never forget, Mike, watching ABC's Wide World of Sports, where it begins, begins like this. Some of you might remember this. Spanning the globe. Dun, dun, dun. You remember that person? That back, you know, you'd watch it on one of those TVs where you got to get the ears working, so it comes in. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. The thrill of victory and the agony. And you remember that guy coming downhill, the high skier, he crumbles and he rolls and it's terrible, breaks five legs. It's a terrible picture. But there is nothing like the thrill of victory. Have you, like, have you ever had the thrill of victory where you utterly decimate your foe? It's a great feeling. I remember one of the best feelings of my life. I was in seventh grade. I made the baseball all-star game, all-star team. It was under the lights. It was bases loaded. I was up. My mom and dad were in the stands. My new brother-in-law's in the stands. And I hit a home run. And it was, un it was unbelievable. I can still hear them chanting my name, Doug. Every night I still go to sleep, I hear that chant, weeks. Wait, it's incredible. The thrill of victory is something else. There's nothing sweeter. And so Saul in this chapter must have felt this, this sweetness of victory. They struck down the Ammonite, they struck down the guy, the very people who said, I'm going to gouge out all the right eyes. 
can see him like some pirate. Ah, get all your right eyes. Scared the people half to death. That's who Saul beat. So you know he's excited. They had a beat down. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, In the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So they're beating on them all day. And those who survived were scattered, so that not two of them were left together. So everybody of the Ammonites left alone. You can just see them running scattering. This was a major victory. And then I like how the chapter ends. It says uh, in verse 15, all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord. And then they offered a peace offering. And a peace offering in the book of Leviticus is the one that is the only one that is shared with everybody. Most of the burnt offering, everything would be burnt up. The peace offering, everybody got to share in it. That was really, if the Jews wanted to party, they'd give a peace offering. It was a time to say thank you to God and a time to rejoice. It's just like that song Jared had us sing. It's time to shout, rejoice, have a good time. And then it finishes and it says, And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Can you imagine the smiling faces around the flickering fireside as they recounted the battle and how they destroyed the Ammonites? Sure, they're probably bloody, they're probably sore, but victory has it's the best medicine. Makes you feel great. I can imagine them raising their glasses, cheering each other. I can hear the exploits, some bragging about their sword battles. But it's in these moments when we finally get to enjoy the fruits of our victory, when we realize we won, it's in this moment we have to be very careful that we don't let pride sneak in. It's in these moments that we need to remember who who really deserves the credit and give credit where credit's due. In this story, there's three places where credit's due, and I would say the same thing for you before... You go and gloat to everybody after you win in the finish line. Or maybe you just had a huge sale at work. Or maybe uh, you sang a song and everybody gives you a standing ovation. Before you let that pride seek in, give credit where credit's due. Actually, I appreciate Jared started off with thank you. Give credit where credit's due. Where does credit do in this case? In verse 7, if you notice... Before Saul goes out to fight, it says he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul, and then he had put his name with Samuel, because that's really who people respected at that time, Samuel. So really, he's linking himself with Samuel, because Samuel was his mentor. Samuel really was the one that got him into his position because he's obedient to God. So Samuel deserves a lot of the credit. So the first question you have to ask yourself is who helped you get where you are? Galatians 6.6 6 says, share all good things with the one who teaches you. In other words, show respect to those who helped you get to where you're at. Whether it be your coaches, your pastor, your teacher, and above all, thank your mom. 
She gave you a meal every day to keep you alive the first 28 years of your life, most of you. See this? See how it's a Mother's Day message? See that? There's my Mother's Day. Threw that in for you, Mom. No, actually, in the men's prayer partners, people are asking me about my mom. I could talk about my mom forever. She had six kids, but I have a sister who is 59 years old. My mom has had to feed her every single day of her life, put diapers on her because she's got the mind of about a two-month-old baby. My mom still faithfully does it. My mom does it with a smile. My dad died 10 years ago, and she still does it. My mom is faithful, amazingly faithful. And mothers do things in the background that nobody ever sees. Often my wife, I know how she feels about me sometimes. Like, you all, you get all the glory up there. People love you, but they don't know. i got to be back here with Joseph and Gio. I, I pray for that. Pray for it and all. But my boys are great. I feel bad she's got to deal with me, but moms are amazing. Thank them. Give credit where credit's due. Second thing that he should have recognized is, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not first receive? Saul was tall. Did he do that? Saul was strong. Did he do that? Saul was good looking. Did he do that? In verse 11, it said God even gave him amazing military intelligence. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in a morning watch, struck down the Ammonites. He had strategy. He knew surprise technique. God gave him the ability to think. You are smart, not because you, God gave you that. Give him credit. And then the third thing is who gave him the power. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. That's why he was so passionate, convinced, because the Spirit of God did that. Zechariah 4, 6 says, It's not by man's might, it's not by man's power, but it's by my Spirit that he is going to move mountains in your life. So always, and, and the reason I say this is because you can't go past this too fast. Always, always give credit where credit's due. Because if you don't give credit to where credit's due, pride is right behind the door. And it's sneaky and it's sticky. Pride is sticky. And by sticky, if you get one smidgen of it in you, just a smidgen, it grows. It's yeast. And it grows. And then more it grows, the more you start believing the press about yourself. You know, my story from hitting a home run in the lights is I only used one hand with my eyes closed. Bam, I'm so good. Silly. I think I probably closed my eyes, hit, went up, probably hit a guy in the head and bounced over there. I don't know, but I give credit to myself. I'm amazing. we got to be so careful of that. Beware. Deuteronomy 8.17 uses the word beware. When you get in the land and everything goes great, beware, lest you forget. And that word Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for beware means set a guard on duty over your heart so that pride can't sneak past them. Because pride is that bad. It's that bad. Because it can ruin your life, and that's what we're going to see. So Saul made a name for himself. And Samuel is his mentor, and now he's ready to bow out and hand over the kingdom to Saul for the first time. But before he goes, we get chapter 12. If you look at chapter 12, we're not going to read through the whole thing. 
But chapter 12 is like his commencement address to Saul. Samuel is giving his graduation address to Saul. And I'm going to title it, Four Keys for Continued Success. So he's going to say, if you guys, Saul, if you want to have continued success, you started out great. Man, you tore up the Ammonites. But if you want to have continued success, I'm going to give you four keys. And I'll tell you what, these four keys are universal principles for you too, if you want to have continued success. In chapter 1 through 5, or verses 1 through 5, he's going to talk about himself a little bit and say, you know what, what I'm telling you is, is it's credible. He talks about how he didn't take anything from anybody, how he was faithful to God. So first of all, he's saying, listen to me because I'm credible. I'm not trying to take anything from you. I'm just doing this for your welfare. Verse 6 through 12, we read last week. In verse 6 through 12, he kind of goes back to the history, how God really never intended for a king, but you wanted it. So really, having Saul as king is plan B. Here's just a note about plan B. Even though plan B is not what God originally wanted, and sometimes you fail to give God's plan A, he still can bless your plan B, even if it's not what God originally had for you. Some people are so scared they missed the will of God for their life. I chose the wrong career. I went the wrong path. I chose plan B. God can still bless your plan B if you do these four keys. So the question is, before we jump into this, is do you want to have a blessed life? And Jeff, you could say it like this. Do you want Haven to have a blessed life? Teach her these things. These are the four keys to success. Number one, take God's conditional grace seriously. Look at verse 12. Uh, 14 to 15 of chapter 12. Verse 14 says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you both, you and the king who reigns over you, will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. By conditional grace... We always think grace is just something that's given to us. Grace is something we don't deserve, but it's not always given right away to us. A lot of times, grace is given to us after we obey an if-then statement. Look in verse 14. Verse 14 says, If you will fear the Lord, and if you both, you and your king reigns well, then it will be well. So a conditional statement is an if-then statement. Do you want God's grace? Yes. Okay, God will give you promises in the Bible where he says, if you do this, then this. Psalm 1 says, if you meditate on the Lord's law every day, if you love it, you will be, then you will be like a tree planted by the streams of water. It doesn't just happen. It's an opportunity for everybody. It's conditional based on your obedience. Take them seriously. In this case, he says, if you fear God, serve him, obey his voice, then all will be well. It's very simple. And you'll see how Saul just doesn't listen. And he's not joking around. Look at verse 17 and 18. So he says, if you do this then, in verse 17... Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, 
and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which what you've done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So in other words, God's saying, listen to Samuel. I mean, he even calls upon the rain, and it comes. So what he's saying is serious business. If you fear him, then things will go well. Do you believe Samuel? He can send thunder. Would you listen to Samuel if you heard thunder? What's the difference? You're hearing him now. So if you fear God, all will go well. But if not, look out. He's not choking around. Number two, avoid the lure of idolatry. It's like a, it's, lure means it's like a, if you're a fish, sending bait. Idolatry is a lie. It's something that wants to replace God. So actually, if you want to see the word idolatry, it just means a terrible exchange. It's like the story of the boy who found his mom's diamond ring laying on the table. And he knew he could get some money for it. So he took his mom's diamond ring, ran to the pawn shop, and exchanged it for some baseball cards and bubble gum. It's an exchange. Every time you exchange God, it's like exchanging a diamond ring for baseball cards and bubble gum. God is everything. My son asked me this week, he said, why do we worship God? Why does he want to be glorified so much? Because he's everything. He's the best thing for us. And we trade him for such silly things. More money. We trade him for popularity often. We want people to like us so we don't tell people we believe in God. We trade him for everything, but it's always trading a diamond for bubblegum cards. He says in here, if you look at um, verse 21, verse 21 says, I'd, I'd underline this because it's that good of a verse. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. Why? Because they're empty. So idolatry are empty things, and they can't profit or deliver you. Why? Because they're empty things. It's very simple. J. Vernon McGee said it like this, hold fast to the Lord alone. Let the gimmicks alone. Today the church is experimenting with methods. The church does not seem to realize that only God can bless. How easily we are fooled by gimmicks. Third thing, so not only avoid the lure of idolatry, third thing is do everything for his namesake. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his name, great namesake because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So he made Israel to bring him glory. And the reason he wants to bless Israel because the more he blesses Israel, hopefully the more fame he will get. I think it's true for you. If you do things for his namesake, I don't think he has a problem blessing. But often we take praise and give it to us. That's why somebody once said, the most dangerous job is my job. Because my sole job is to bring attention to Jesus and if I steal that attention I'm stealing his glory it's dangerous everything you do needs to be done with everything you got for his glory and his glory alone fourth thing in verse 23 is something that when on the men's retreat in the last couple days I've been meditating on this and I've always known this verse but I avoid it like the plague but I shouldn't You'll see why. It says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me 
that I should sin against the Lord. Okay, let's stop there. I won't sin against the Lord. I won't. No, 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 keep going, because what is the sin he's talking about? Look at what the sin is. Moreover, as far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel's saying, my responsibility, Samuel and Israel, is to pray for you. And when I pray, God hears my prayers. He sent thunder and lightning, and it would be sin for me if I stopped praying for you. In the same way, I think success comes when we are ceaseless in prayer. So if you do these four things, if you do these four things with whatever you do, this will, number one, kill pride, and I guarantee success. So how well did Saul do? So the reason why we got to be careful with this is we look at this, we say, that's so easy. I do that all the time. Makes sense. Man, I can pray. I do everything for his name. Do you really? So look at this next verse. I want to show you this verse. It says this. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Those four things, we can say we do that, but do you really? Do you really do things for his glory or yours? And so what happens is God will test your heart. He will give situations that show what's inside of you to the world through testing. And so chapter 13 is Saul's test. So he had a great victory in chapter 11. Amazing! Chapter 12, he's given four keys to success. He's ready to go. He's now the king. In chapter 13, right away, God's going to test him in three areas that he tests you all the time. And the question is, what comes out, pride or humility? So number one, here's the test. And I'm going to uh, say these are the three areas he tests. Three areas he wants to purify you. And he purifies people first and foremost, and this is very strange, through praise. Do you know praise is a test? Look at chapter 13, 1 through 4. Watch how it reads. It goes like this. Saul was years old. I have, what does your Bible say, Paul? How old was, how old was he? Did you, Andrew, how old was he in your Bible? Verse 1 of chapter 13. Okay, yeah, it's kind of weird. So it doesn't, uh, Jared, what does your Bible say? Because you're the Bible scholar. Okay, so Paul was heart, Saul was heart years old, 30 years old. Yeah, so they really don't know how old, but we'll go with 30. So he's 30 years old, prime of his life. When he began to reign, and he reigned, and two years, he was king for a while. Two years. In verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. So he gets together kind of a standing National Guard army. 3,000, 2,000 hang out with him in the capital. 1,000 with his son Jonathan, which is sort of at the outskirts, defending the capital from the enemy. 
The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, who was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Okay, so who defeated the Philistines? Names him Jonathan, defeated to get the Philistines. And the Philistines are bad dudes. They're bad. So, Jonathan should get the praise and the accolades. But look what happened, and watch how it reads. So Jonathan defeats the Philistines, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land. Okay, that's all right. He's sending press. He blew the trumpet, proclaiming a victory. Let the Hebrews hear. And so what did they hear? What kind of victory did Saul proclaim? And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrisons of the Philistines. Wait, who defeated the garrison of the Philistines? Jonathan did. But who did they hear it? They heard that Saul did. And who did the trumpeting? Saul. First way to test the heart is through praise, victory. How do you, how do you communicate when things go well for you? Who do you give credit to? Saul spread the news that he did it. Who takes credit for your win? Saul allowed front page news to give him credit. He was more than happy to take the credit. Are you? Are you always the best in your stories? Do you have the biggest fish? The most interesting fishing stories all the time? Are you the best cook? So somebody tells you about a meal they made, but you just made it a little bit better. How about taking photographs? How about building pole barns? How about giving godly advice? Are you the one who always gives the godly advice? Do you blow your own horn? That's where I think they got the idea of blowing your own horn. A proud heart does. In fact, a proud heart craves the credit. It wants people to know. I can remember I hit that home run how many times and said, Mom, how'd you like that? Pretty good hit, wasn't it? Come back in the room later. Hey, Tam, what'd you think of my hit? Come in and I say, hey, Jimmy, that's my sister's husband. What'd you think of that hit? And then my sister, who's in my grade, always hit me upside the head and said, will you quit bragging? Stop it. Thank God for sisters. I'm not I had four of them, and I needed them because they brought me low every day. Every day, still do. They'll hear the sermon. I'll go, wasn't that good? Why don't you ever give me better credit than that? That's my sisters. Thank God for sisters. Anyhow. First test, praise, how do you do? Second test, pressure. Pressure specifically with waiting. Oh, boy, this tests the heart. Look at verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, well, let's start in verse 5. Philistines were mad. They were mad that Jonathan tore up their garrison. And so verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. And this is some serious heavy armament, say 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped in Michmash at the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. 
Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the Philistines got mad. It's kind of like when Jonathan defeated the garrison, it's kind of like he poked the beehives now. So the Philistines said, all right, you want to fight? Here we go. So they loaded up with chariots and horses, and they started marching towards Israel. And people got scared. The hidden cisterns, so deep, deep uh, holes in the ground to catch the water, like a well. They'd hide in that because they didn't want to be defeated. So they went to hide under Saul, and Saul will take care of them. So verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. And he waited for Samuel because Samuel is the priest. He's the only one allowed to do the offering. And he wants to wait to get God's blessing before they go to fight. So he's waiting. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So they come to get shelter from Saul. Samuel's not showing up, so they're like, we're out of here. So they take off into the hill country. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he, really you should circle that word he, he offered the burnt offering. Was he supposed to do that? Do you remember two weeks ago when you did something against God's word? Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? If you saw the Ark of the Covenant, what happened? You died. Do you remember when um, Aaron's two sons offered a strange fire? That means the wrong offering. What happened to Aaron's two sons? They died. You're supposed to take God pretty serious when it comes to his word, and you know what? Saul didn't. Because pride doesn't like to wait. We, we don't, in our pride, we are anxious. We want to get it done now because we believe I'm too important to wait. So we become impatient. Impatience is often a sign of pride. I deserve things now. Pride makes hasty and presumptuous decisions. Before it waits to hear from God. There are so many areas where we do this. I, I will say there's four areas where pride really can come alive in my heart. So it probably comes alive in your heart. I would say personal relationships. I have actually, when I do counseling, I see people who really don't want to wait to sleep together before they're married. And you say, but God says stay pure before you're married, but they don't want to. So what are they saying? I am too important to wait because I have urges. So I don't need to listen to how about with purchases? When you want something, you don't have money for it. Put it on credit so you can get it now. Pride. I think, and this is a hard one to talk about, I think sometimes we have such a, we have a really, a big problem with painkillers because when people have pain, they want to relieve that pain now. Even a trickle of it. They learn to just take care of it now. And it's their right to. That's a tough one because there's a lot of addiction these days. And then a, a sad one is just this whole preferences on gender. Some people, some somehow we've taught our kids in seven, seven years old, eight years old, they can decide what sex they want to be. So why not turn them into that sex at that age? And then it says by the time they're 12, 13, 14, their hormones start kind of equilibrium and they realize they made a mistake. Read the reports on, by Johns Hopkins universities on people who 
have transgender surgeries and just the depression. It's because we don't want to wait. We think we're right. We think we know who we are more than God does, even though he gives us that sexual biology we have this preference so our pride overrides his joy it's crazy we live in a crazy world pride does not like to wait Saul wanted answers now so he violated the direct law of God and offered a burnt offering that was reserved for only the priest didn't Saul Samuel just give a thundering commencement that said if you do what I when under pressure Specifically, the pressure of waiting, pride gives in and overrides the direct will of God. So the third one, the third area of testing comes through failure, personal failure. Verse 10 and 11, watch how it's written in verse 10. So verse 9, he offered the burnt offering. Look at verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. He just waited a second longer. But sometimes I think God allows us to fail to see how we respond to failure. Because failure is a test. Instantly, Samuel comes and he looks what Saul did and he said, What have you done? It's a direct implication. You've messed up. You've sinned. You've failed. How do you do when you feel that? Somebody either calls you out or your own heart says, what have you done? How do you respond? That's the test. The failure is already over. That's not the test. The real test is how do you respond to failure? Romans 11.32 says all of us are going to disobey so that he can have mercy on us all. But how do we respond when we disobey? What do we do with the fallout? How does pride handle failure? In the story of Sam of Saul... Do you know what he does? He instantly points blame and the finger at everybody else but himself. Look what he says. Um, verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, so the people all left me. They all left me. What do you want me to do? And then he says, they were all scattering from me. And you did not come within the days appointed. You said you would come. Where were you, huh? Kind of priest are you? Blames the priest. And that the Philistines had must. It's a Philistine's fault. They should just, you know, it's their fault. So he's blaming everybody else but himself. Have you ever noticed how arrogant, proud people will never admit they are wrong when they are wrong? Ever. When they sin, they justify. And then when, when they uh, try to make sense out of it, they get these strange, false, pious statements. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the strangest verse. This is Sam, uh, Saul trying to make sense out of what he did. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought to favor the Lord. So he's saying, i got to be a righteous guy, and I need God to help me. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I forced myself to make the tough choice. I knew it would be sin, but I had to force myself to sin. What? It's crazy. It's twisted logic. Pride is twisted logic. Christians do this all the time. 
They do this all the time. God wants me to love others. He wants me to love others. And you know what? I'm supposed to love the homosexual because God wants me to love others. I have to do that because God wants me to love others. But didn't God say something that homosexuality? Well, I'm going to override God on what his word says because the deeper meaning that God really wants is he wants me to love. So Samuel's saying, I, God wants me to seek his favor in this fight, but Samuel didn't show up who's supposed to seek his favor, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to go the high. What? It's convoluted. How dare you judge me for sinning? Don't you know you're not supposed to judge? So when a wife points out that her husband's drunk, come him, came home drunk, he gets mad at her because God isn't allowed judgment. Wait a minute, but you're sinning by being drunk. I know, but you're not supposed to judge. That's not judgment. That's just kind of justification. Pride justifies by actually trying to seem even actually godlier than God himself. So Saul failed the test on all three counts. On the first count, through praise, he should have given it back to God. On the second account, through pressure, he should have prayed. On the third account, through failure, he should have begged for mercy. So Saul failed, and look at verse 13 to 14. 13 and 14 says... Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He would have, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He started great with the Ammonites, but boy, did he finish bad. As I was reading this judgment on Saul, I wondered, at what point does pride ruin a person? What point does pride ruin? Even in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, a little leaven, a little leaven, be careful, can leaven the whole lump. As if a little bit of pride, ultimately, if you don't stop it, it can ruin it. The whole person. In other words... Is there a point at which a person is ruined? Is there a point where pride is so taken over a person that they have become corrupt and God sees them as corrupt? I don't know. I know that you can always ask for forgiveness, but I know there's a lot of warnings. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, I'm speaking this to your shame. Bad company corrupts good character. Be careful. I do know this, pride does go before a fall. So are you successful? Do you have talent? Do you give credit where credit's due? And as I was thinking through this, I know some of you are thinking, is it wrong to have pride? I think there's a good kind of pride, and then there's a bad kind of pride. A good kind of pride is confidence, belief that God has gifted you. The bad kind of pride we have, the word is actually hubris. It's a Greek word. It's a word that the Greeks basically said when a man thinks he's greater than the gods. They have hubris. And I was thinking, are there any examples of hubris? Anybody you know? And I looked up, I went online, the top 15 athletes who have started well but finished bad. You know who number one is? And I realized, man, this is the perfect example. Tiger Woods. 
Tiger Woods was number one in the world. He had 14 majors in nine years. He's the first athlete who ever earned $1 billion. He bragged about that he woke up every morning at 5 o'clock to hit golf balls. He pumped iron with heavy weights, and he worked harder than anyone else. He said, I work harder than anyone else. That's why I'm successful. And then all of a sudden, front page news, his wife hit his car with his nine iron after she read a tabloid at the checkout counter about an affair. And it turned out he didn't just have one affair. He had 14 known mistresses. Half of endorsements dropped him. His wife filed for divorce. And to this day, he's now in his fourth back surgery. He finally came out and he said, I know my actions were wrong, but I, am, I convinced myself normal rules didn't apply to me. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to get away with. I worked hard. I thought I deserved it. But I realized I brought the shame upon myself. He just came out with a book, and one observer wrote, he's just a completely different man. But he's still lost from who he is. And in his latest memoir, the guy writes, he still can't find who the real Tiger Woods is. He's totally lost himself. Pride does that. You lose who you are. You're so blinded, you don't realize you are alive because of God. You start taking credit. And people around you don't want to be with you. You lose yourself. If that's true, there's only one way to come back. To number one, to admit you're a sinner. Number two, to fall on your face, give him credit, and change your life to a life of prayer to where you need him for everything. And I would do it before that little sin spoils the whole.